I spent my whole life trying to live and pry and snare and grab and take out a life shit that I thought would make me happy. That's actually the opposite. I give, I accept, I understand. And then I get all of those things back. Like whoever would have thought, right? Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. I'm your host, Adrian, and today I'm joined by a recovered drug addict from Calgary. My guest struggled with his identity growing up as half First Nations in a predominantly white Christian school, and workaholism and smoking weed became the main ways to numb out and feel okay. Becoming wealthy did not satisfy his inner emptiness, and he began to escape by smoking crack. After a few years of gaining tolerance, his drug use increased and became completely compulsive to the point where he lost everything and entered recovery. My guest is a big book thumper through and through. The 12 steps is what saved his life and brought him to a place of happiness and peace today. And he now focuses his energy on spreading the recovery message through the online platform he has built. Please join me in welcoming my guest, Bill Ward. Bill Ward, welcome to the Addictive Pod. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Yeah, thank you, Adrian, for having me. Uh, it was nice connecting with you, and I'm really looking forward to uh, chatting with you today. Yeah, I think even though uh, you're on the other side of the country and um, you have First Nations background, I don't. I think we still have a lot to connect with and a lot of shared parts of our story. And one of the first things I noticed about your story was um, from from what I've seen on YouTube and from talking to you as well is the the belief systems that were forced on you as a kid, right? Growing up, going to a religious school and adopting these belief systems that you didn't really choose or you didn't really believe. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What that was like growing up in that environment? Yeah, well, it's something that I didn't really tap into and realize until, you know, the last six years of recovery as I've kind of reflected back in my life. But, uh, you know, some of the belief systems that I guess were indoctrinated in me without really my choice were, you know, I had to go to a school that was uh, religious and we had to do mass and we had to say these prayers and I was just a kid. So I didn't have a choice of where I went to school or what I learned. And I'm a product of my environment. So I learned a lot of these, uh, you know, religious disciplines. Um, from that, I, I learned a lot of societal belief systems, you know, right from a kid, just like many of us, you know, if you, if you work hard, and you get a good job, and you'll find a good wife, and you'll make good money. And, you know, don't worry too much about other people, just worry about yourself and kind of move forward in life and get these things and you're going to be happy. And, you know, when I look at different turning points of my life, when I had a lot of those things, it just never really fulfilled and made me happy, but I didn't know any other way. And I was just doing what I saw on TV, what I saw on the billboards, what teachers would tell me and what the other peers were also attuned to doing. We were all kind of moving in the direction of ideals that weren't really mine and belief systems that weren't really mine in it. And it kind of went in some ways, as I look back, went against the core value system many in many ways of who I was actually. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, if I think if you act like that and you're like that, 
you need something to, to medicate right. it. And so I look back at my life and I can just see why I did drugs and alcohol. You know? So do you remember at that age, let's say you're going to school, you are sort of being subjected to these different belief systems. What's the uh, experience like for you? What's the emotional experience like? Are you looking forward to going to school? Are you scared walking in those doors? What, what was that like? Well, there was one thing that my my mom had said to me when I was really young, my mom's white, my dad's full Cree. And my mom had said to me, you know, in the nicest, kindest way that she could. And I know she didn't mean to hurt me, but she said, you know, you're going to be treated differently in life because you're Indian. And as a kid, I didn't really understand that. So it really kind of messed with me as I went to school. But as I'm in school, I would look around and go, well, yeah, I'm you know, I'm one of very few dark skinned mm. people in a predominantly white school. And, you know, I would be subject to, you know, name calling and, and, you know, different types of things, you know, wagon burner, Indian, you know, drunk and Indian, and even in kids are cruel, right? So a lot of this type of verbiage was thrown at me. And I learned from a young age, I had to, you know, stand up for myself. And uh, so I took on fighting as a defense mechanism to kind of roll through life. And that was one. So sometimes it was scary to go to school. It was scary to go many places because I didn't want to be native is really the fundamental thing. But I didn't really realize that at the time. When do drugs and alcohol enter the scene? Because assuming that you were going to this more religious school, I mean... I'm, I'm assuming that both drugs and alcohol would have been taught, it would have been taught to you that these are to be avoided or these are to be very moderated, right? So when was this first introduced? Well, I grew up in a community in Calgary, Alberta named Ogden. And uh, our community was kind of the community on the other side of the tracks, the community that, you know, your average person didn't really want to come into. So I, my belief is, is our community had a lot of people doing drugs and alcohol. Our parents did it. Um, the biggest bike gang in Calgary was in this community. So we had the biker bikers in our neck of the woods. And then the Hells Angels rolled into town and took over. And so a lot of the kids that I grew up with, their parents or their uncles or somebody was connected to the to the bike gang somehow. And so it was pretty normal to grow up with drugs around smoking weed for sure, drinking at a young age. And so around 13, 14 years old, I remember my buddy starting to smoke weed at maybe 12, 13. I wasn't really into it quite yet, but then I started smoking cigarettes at 14 and shortly thereafter I started smoking weed. And then, then the ball started rolling, but it was pretty normal for where I grew up and they didn't mention don't drink and do drugs in school very much. I don't remember that. So it just was a part of life where I grew up and yeah. As you're starting to um, move through high school and starting to work, what's it like going after that path to material success, going after the car, going after the, the girl and the job and, and all of those things that the movies and the billboards showed you to go after what was that process like? I don't think at that young age, I was quite in that direction yet. 
I think I was still more worried about being accepted. And then I would overcompensate for the acceptance by being super good at sports. I would be a perfectionist at sports. So I was really good at all the sports that I played in junior high school, going into high school, even. Did you play um, hockey? I, I did play hockey. Right yeah, on. For, right on. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really good at it and tried to excel. Um, and if I didn't make the best team, I look back today and I, I actually shamed myself a lot because I needed to be the best at whatever it was. And if I didn't, I felt less than um, skateboarding. Also, I was a fabulous skateboarder. And so that really propelled me into the peer group. Once the hockey kind of ended, skateboarding took over because skateboarding, you could do high and you could drink and, you know, the girls liked it. So I kind of moved into the status aspect within my peer group of, uh, you know, being a successful in my peers as a party animal, successful as a skateboarder, um, you know, trying to date the hottest chicks or the hottest chicks were actually attracted to me. So that worked well for me. So a lot of outside validation. So for me to focus on career, even in high school, even in high school, I was kind of an outcast because the high school I decided to go to, everyone was jocks and they were from well-to-do families. And for some reason, I decided to go to this high school and I was from Ogden. I drove a 72 Impala while these other kids were driving their mom and dad's Mercedes and BMWs and, and I could barely afford gas and these kids didn't have to pay for gas. So I would be sitting outside the smoke doors a lot, you know, smoking by myself and maybe, you know, kind of hanging out with the same kind of kids that were, that I was like, so, you know, and, and I went to high school for four years and still didn't even graduate. And, uh, but all I cared about was partying anyway. So it didn't really matter. Once I got home after school, you know, I was accepted because my peer group, they, they really liked me, right? They really did. Do you think that fueled the uh, the desire for success later on though. I mean, being around kids, they're in Mercedes, they're, they're probably dressing well, showing up, not a care in the world. Like that must've sort of planted a seed in your mind. Don't you think of wanting to be better, wanting to have more? Yes. I'm, you know, it's part of the indoctrination of what society does. And as I look around and I see, you know, the guys with the nice cars and they're looking sharp, they got the nice women and, you know, they seem to have money and they seem to be happy and, kind of like the poster of the beer commercial of the, the guy with the hot chicks and on the boat and nice car and that stuff got ingrained in me. So yeah, I'm, I really do believe that that was what I was kind of looking for, but I didn't really seek it out until I was probably, you know, 20 years old. When I started growing up, I believe I was pretty immature emotionally and mentally, but I remember at about 13, 14 years old, I was like, what's the point to life anyway? I was pretty restless, irritable, discontented, as it describes in our book at a young age. I didn't feel a part of, so I was like, what's the point? But then I did find drugs and alcohol, and I was accepted in many respects by my peers through that party scene. Um, I also gained a lot of respect as a fighter. So I fought my whole way through my teenage years and I could get anywhere with the violence and people wouldn't mess with me. So that, that really worked. But later on at about 20, 22 years old, I had actually quit drinking 
And I stood at the turning point again, going, what's the point? Like, what's the point of life? And then it clicked. I'm like, it looks like people that have money, people that have money and things and shiny things and own their own businesses. These are the people. That's how I'm going to be happy. Right. And so I made a decision. I'm going to get rich. I made a decision right at 23 years old. And then boom, my, my untreated alcoholism, because I quit drinking, was now going to get treated with uh, status and workaholism. And right. uh, so that's what I did. Yeah, I mean, that is, a, that is a recipe for success in some ways. I mean, you have this, you have this hole, you have this dissatisfaction, identity crisis. And instead of filling that hole or, or numbing out through alcohol, you're going to numb out through working hard, through trying to achieve that next thing. Uh, what did you achieve? So did you start your own business? How did you, how did you start to build that wealth? Yeah, well, I was working for a company as a, you know, just a regular worker for a company that installed gas lines. And, and I saw in the winters, we would have to thaw the ground out in Calgary. And I saw all these other companies thawing ground out with little piles of coal. And then it clicked on me one day, I'm like, I'm going to burn coal for all the companies in Calgary. So I had bought an old piece of shit dump truck and told my boss, this is what I'm going to do. He thought I was crazy. Everyone thought I was crazy. And I ended up quitting and I, and I did it. Next thing you know, I'm working for one of the biggest utility companies in Canada ATCO. I'm ground thawing for them. I'm ground thawing for the second largest utility contractor in Alberta. And then from there, it just started going. So I started making some pretty good money at 24 years old. And, uh, and I had to work my ass off like day and night. And, but it became pretty successful as I walked through the next 13 years. How conscious or how present were you in those 13 years? Did they just go by in the blink of an eye or, or what was that? What was that period of your life like? Well, the beginning part was I was really driven by let's make this happen and not knowing if it was going to happen. I sacrificed a lot of my own personal um, maybe satisfactions thinking that maybe one day I could reap some benefits. So I, I had a model where I'd say sacrifice for gain. And another one of my models was the more, you know, the more you're worth. So I, I did this for the first number of years. I met my wife, uh, common law wife, Shannon. She already had a daughter. We had two more daughters together. I worked solid for five years, no days off ever. Um, finally, at five years in, Shannon came to me and she said, Bill, you got a family. Like you got girls and you have me and you don't focus any time on us. And can you take Sundays off? And I remember back then I was, I was pretty pissed off at her for interfering with my business and what I'm doing, asking me for a day off. Like, how dare you kind of attitude, right? But I did. And I took Sundays off. Um, and then at year seven, she asked me for holidays. Again, I was pretty pissed off and, but I took a holiday and trying to Adrian, I was an untreated alcoholic addict. My drugs and alcohol quit working. I stopped on a prayer one day I prayed and that's how I stopped drinking. 
Then I got into workaholism and it just was another manifestation of self. Like I book says, it was just a distraction. All I got was relief and I was selfish, self-centered to the core in the pursuit of all these endeavors, trying to raise my status because as I already ingrained these, these status belief systems of loss of self-worth, I tried to make my self-worth more through, you know, what you thought of me. I thought money was going to be, one of the tickets to happiness. So I was driven in all these delusions. And, and as I worked through, you know, past year seven, I've made my wife cry so many times in our relationship. I never touched her physically, but I, I made her feel really shitty with some of the things that I would say, you know, I would come home from work sometimes and she would be like, kids, don't talk to your dad, just let him be. And and I was like, kind of like a king, right? They would just all work around me. And I didn't realize how domineering and how much of an asshole I really was. But my wife loved me so much, she would put up with it. And, and I was a good dad, too. And I was a pretty good husband in some ways, but I was very selfish. And, you know, halfway through this 13, 14 year tenure, I was still just focused on me, I started doing more with the family. But I was just an untreated addict alcoholic, bro. And uh, when did the alcohol come back? When did you start to drink again? Because at a certain point, I mean, um, even work probably lost its effect. It lost its escape. It totally did. At about 10 years in, so 2009 or so, my grandmother passed away. And uh, she was like my angel on my mom's side, my grandmother, she was just one of my angels and she passed away. That was the same year that I took my first two to crack. So alcohol never came back in the picture, but workaholism and the relief that I got for my spiritual malady from work, it quit working. And it just so happened around this time, my brother, who was a year younger than me, he was out in Winnipeg using drugs and alcohol also. And he was a missing person. So my dad called me up and said, son, can you come out to Winnipeg and help me look for your brother? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Although me and my brother weren't really tight because I've had many years free of any real drugs or alcohol and my brother's right in it. So I disconnected from him, but he's still my brother. So I'm like, okay, I'll go and help you find him. All through this time, me running my company and building this, I was the pothead. I always, and my wife used to say to me, you're so nice when you're smoking pot, right? And so she always wanted me to smoke pot. Oh, so. you skipped that part, Bill. I was confused. You, <laughs> I was like, wow, this guy isn't smoking anything for 10 years. Okay, okay. So you're smoking weed pretty consistently through this whole period of, of workaholism as well. Yeah. Totally, bro. And I wouldn't do anything without weed. I wouldn't go fishing with the family. I wouldn't go camping. If we didn't have weed, I wasn't going. There you go. Okay, this, this is making a little bit more sense. 10-4. Um, so anyway, I go out to Winnipeg. My dad doesn't fly. So I flew. He drove. He was a day behind me. And I get to Winnipeg and I have these pictures of my brother. And so I go to the downtown area of Winnipeg. I start going to the bars and talking to homeless people, showing my brother's picture to all these people saying, have you seen this guy? Have you seen this guy? No, no, no. Haven't seen him. Haven't seen him. And then finally one guy goes, yeah, I've seen your brother. I think I know where he is. And I'm like, really? I said, can you take me to him? He's like, yep. So he jumps in my rental car 
and we go to the shady end of Winnipeg and uh, we pull up to this house and I walk into this house with this guy and it's a pretty ratty torn, you know, pretty shitty looking house. And I go in and there's other people there. And there's a guy that says, you know, the only way you can come in here is if you prove you're not a cop and uh, passes me a crack pipe and a piece of crack. Well, the guys that used to work for me, some of them would smoke crack and I'd fire them. If you did hard drugs, I would fire you from my company. So I was really against hard drugs. And I never understood the illness as the obsession and the allergy. Of course, I'm just going through my life, not really knowing any of that. I just don't drink. But I go into this house, I grab the pipe, I have a hit of crack, I have another hit of crack. And then I go look for my brother. And that was a small price to pay, I figured, to find my brother. And he wasn't there. We did find him the next day and we got him to safety. I come back to Calgary and I didn't know that I had just set off the phenomenon of craving in my body with a drug that I wasn't, I had never done. And all I could think about for the next week, man, was crack and that feeling. And, and it was really confusing because I didn't like hard drugs. I didn't do hard drugs and I don't want to do them, but the relief that I got from work, it quit working. And I can look back, only look back and go, yeah, those last few years, I wasn't doing it because I loved it. I was doing it because I had to. I was doing it to make more money and all the purpose was gone out of my work. But then I found this new thing. It was crack. And I couldn't stop thinking about it when I got home. After about a month of this obsession, just driving my mind, I secretly went and found some and I secretly smoked it by myself. And I got launched into the fourth dimension, bro. And it was the best thing. It was the thing that I was looking for my whole life. But I felt so guilty because I have a family and I know I shouldn't be doing drugs, but it's not really, I'm not addicted to it. I don't think yet. It's, you know, my first couple of times. So that whole first year, bro, I just hit it and I would smoke it like once a month, but I had a lot of guilt and shame. And it didn't affect me in a real negative way yet either. But then the second year, I got a little sneakier and I did it a little bit more. And I would say that I'm going to work, but I was actually going to smoke a bit of crack or I'm going to wash my truck and I'm going to smoke a little bit of crack. But I could come home and be pretty much normal. But that third year, everything changed. The third year, that shit had me and it started putting its hands around my neck. And that third year, I got right out of the hand with the crack. The fourth year, the fifth year, bro, I was doing things that I would never do. I was, you know, shacking up in hotels for the whole day, just smoking crack, ignoring my wife, ignoring my business, trying to run my business off the phone, um, you know, using call girls, and barely even using them because I was more focused on my crack than the girl. But it was so fucked up, bro. Anyway, what happened is uh, my wife and kids never did know that I smoked crack. And I burnt our lives to the ground in those five years. I ended up having to lose my business and my home was going into foreclosure. I got some work with some big companies 
because I was pretty talented. So these big companies hired me and they paid me a lot of money. I was making 15 to 20 grand clear a month. And it was more than I made running my business. But that's where I got busted. I ended up smoking it all night. I would smoke it all night till five in the morning. And then I would get up at 5.30 and try to be at work by six. And every night after work, I didn't want to do it again. And I knew I was... I knew I was disregarding and disrespecting my family. And I would drive to this one intersection. I was working up north by Edmonton. And I would get to the intersection and I would pray and I would ask God that I didn't even care about or believe. And I'd be like, fuck, please let me turn right and go to my apartment. I don't want to turn left and go get more crack. And I'd get to this intersection every single day, bro. And I would try to turn right and my truck would turn left. I would go to Edmonton, I would get it, same cycle. There'd even be nights, there would even be nights after work where I would, uh, I'd get to that intersection and I would go home and I would go to bed and I would be in bed. The obsession was so strong, it'd be midnight and I'd get out of bed and I'd get in my vehicle and I'd drive oh to Edmonton. I'd, yeah, dude, it just ruled my life. Your wife must have found out at this point, though, no? No, she wow. never did. She she knew I hated hard drugs. Yeah. So she so knew she I never, would never. She never noticed if you're gone all night or if you're not coming back till 5 a.m. She would never call you out on it? No, I would always come home no later than 1 a.m. Okay. I, I might come home tweaking. But what I did in this relationship is I, I ruined the relationship. And I would distance myself from her and I would start fights so that I could use with impunity. And I would use right beside her. So I never used a crack pipe at home. What I would do is I would put ashes in a weed pipe. I would top it off with a little bit of crack, but then I'd put weed on top because the weed smell kills the crack smell. Mm -hmm. And then, so she thought I was smoking weed because she knew I was a pothead. Oh, but right. Look, Little did she know I'm blasted out of my fucking tree, but because I've separated our relationship, we're now like sleeping on opposite sides of the bed and just kind of managing as a couple that's not communicating. And it's all due to me, right? And I would lie and I would lie. Like I would say, I'm going fishing. I'd hook up the boat and I wouldn't go fishing. I'd just go find somewhere in the bush and smoke crack all day, come home. She'd be like, Hey, how was fishing? I couldn't look her in the eye and I'd say it was great. And she just got such a bad vibe for me. She didn't want to engage with me because like right. I said, I'm restless, irritable, discontent. And, and I could, I could be angry and she didn't want the anger. So right. I was, I was so fucked up, bro. So when did your, when did your job eventually bust you? Um, because I smoked every single night till five 30, and I was like one of the main construction managers. Like I was supervised over 200 men. And I had this meeting I had to be at. And there was a speed limit on the job site because it was so big and there was so much safety. I pulled into the parking lot because I was a couple minutes late for the safety meeting. And there was a barricade there. And my tire touched the barricade and knocked the barricade over. And with this high level of safety, any incident is a reportable incident. Well, I wouldn't have reported it, but there was one of our, a guy below me that I was his kind of senior, his safety, he was a safety guy. And he saw me do this. 
so he came over and said, yeah, we, we got to write it up. Right. And I'm like, yeah, of course. And then I'm like shitting my pants. Cause I knew. So we take it to our safety people. Any incident is piss test. So then my boss says, well, we gotta, we gotta practice what we preach. So Bill's going to have to do a piss test. Wow. So then, then I piss tested bro. And then it was all downhill from there. After they finally confirmed the results, which was a month later, because the tests were inconclusive. So they had to retest it. And finally they found positive for cocaine. And I remember I was driving with my wife and on the phone, I got the call from the testing company in Ontario. They said, you tested positive for cocaine and marijuana. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. Hang up the phone. And I look at my wife and I tell her, yeah, they just, I tested positive for weed. I didn't tell her about the cocaine. And then after that, it all started sliding downhill. I didn't go to treatment. What happened was me and my wife got in a fight. I left the family home. And I, by this time I was renting another house because I was losing my old house. So I was renting a house for $5,000 a month, a big, huge house about an hour away from my original house. So I got in a fight with my wife and I said, fuck you, I'm out of here. And I leave, I go get crack and I go to my old house and my old house is already in possession of the bank and they're doing some renovation stuff there. So all the walls are ripped out. There's no lights on or anything, but I still had access because it was still my house, but it was the bank's house too. And all the paperwork hadn't been done. So I go to this house I smoke crack in there for a couple of days and then I'm like devastated. My whole life screwed. And then I asked my wife, there's only two things that I didn't put in the end of a crack pipe. I put all our money and sold everything to put in the end of a crack pipe. The only two things that I couldn't do that with was the boat because it was in her name and a travel trailer. She didn't know I was smoking crack still. You got to remember. I asked her, Shannon, can I borrow the travel trailer to live in? She was mad at me, but she loved me. And she said, yeah. So I parked the travel trailer on the foreclosed property and I squatted on the foreclosed property and the travel trailer with no food, no money, no nothing for like eight months. Wow. But, but about four months, maybe three months into that travel trailer deal, I went to a meeting with my dad. So I never went to treatment. I just, my dad was in the program for third over 30 years. And I asked him, dad, can you take me to a meeting? My life's fucked. And he said, son, I've been waiting 30 years for you to ask me that question. And that's how I got started in the program of recovery, bro. Wow, Bill. That's really intense. That's really, that's really extreme to be put in that position to, to reach that position of powerlessness where yeah you literally have everything on the line and you still are choosing to go find a place where you can smoke up it's just it's insane it's literally insane when you think about it um and for a lot of people it doesn't make any sense it doesn't for a lot of people they wouldn't understand why a person would experience something like that but for anyone who goes through addiction it's that's the powerlessness that's the the compulsion and the the insanity of the addiction. Um, tell me about that first meeting. What was it like going into a 12-step meeting and hearing other people talk about their own experience? 
my first meeting i can't remember my first meeting but i remember being very angry and not really wanting to be there and like anger that's what i remember is anger but i had nowhere to go like in our book it says crushed by a self-imposed crisis we could no longer postpone or evade I couldn't postpone or evade it anymore, bro. I was crushed by my own self-imposed crisis of addiction. And I had nowhere else to go. I had no more pride. I had no more spirit. I had no more money. If I had another hundred bucks in my pocket, bro, and another tank of gas, I might not be sitting here talking to you today, right? Mm -hmm. But I had nowhere to go. So I sat in those meetings. And I remember when I would get asked to share, all I would share was anger and volatility and but i felt something i felt hope it would be that maybe maybe this can work for me but i was very prejudiced against all this god bullshit and i didn't really understand what they were talking about but i just kept coming bro i just kept coming there was a turning point though about two months into my meetings did you, so at this point, are you starting to put together some sober days? Are you close to two months sober at that point or were you still? Yeah, I started to put sober days together because I hung on to my dad's pant leg. Okay. And I, I went to meeting after meeting after meeting, dude. I was five meetings a day guy for like a month or two wow. months or three months and half hour to the meeting, an hour in the meeting, half hour away from the meeting to the next meeting in Calgary. We have a lot of meetings. I could eat up a whole day and then yeah. make it to bed sober. And I kind of, that's what I did for the first while, man. Um, there got to a point where me and my ex Shannon, she's now my ex at this point, we couldn't even talk. She was so mad at me because she was so mad at me. And my main defense mechanism is anger. We couldn't even talk. So we had to get my dad and her mom to mediate any conversations. And that's pretty unbelievable because my ex-wife is pretty, pretty calm and able to forgive. But she was so mad at me for what I'd done to our family. And she still doesn't know at this point what I had actually done. Yeah. Anyway, uh, after a meeting with her, I'm so mad. And my dad's like, hey, son, you want to go to a meeting? I'm like, yeah, let's go to a meeting, dad. So he takes me to this group. And uh, there's a speaker there. And this guy was so sharp dressed and looked so good. And I'm like saying to my dad, does this guy like run AA? Like, <laughs> does he run this place? Like, yeah. holy, like he looks pretty good. And anyway, uh, I heard this guy's story and I related with all of the feelings. I related with the powerlessness. I related with every part of what this guy laid down. And then once he was done, I said to my dad, because I'd heard about sponsors, but I didn't have one yet. I said, yeah, this guy'd be a good sponsor for someone, eh? And my dad's like, yeah, go ask him. And I'm like, I can't ask this guy. You know, I had so much fear in that moment, bro. My dad coaxed me to ask him. And so I humbled myself. And this is sheer humble humiliation, because I am the guy who can do anything by himself. So I go ask this guy dude, can you sponsor me? And he's like, yeah, sure. Take my number. We'll meet every Wednesday. And that was the beginning of the beginning of my new life was that day, basically. And it was beautiful. A lot of people 
including the big book, actually. The big book has some cautions around family and trying to get people into recovery, right? There's this concept that um, recovery should come from sort of a, an outside source, someone where there's no past history from. It should be from a doctor, something like that. What's your take on that? Having the experience of it was your dad that you went to. It was your dad who brought you to that meeting, who helped you through those first two months. What do you think about family members who want to bring their their brother or their son or their daughter into recovery? What would you say to them? I would say you might be able to give a suggestion and say, you know, maybe this might help you but that's as far as you're going to be able to take it. And my dad had used the attraction, not promotion with me. And I've tried with my brother, the same approach, like, you know, trying to tell him more about this way of life to no avail. But I can tell you this six years in um, a much more important demonstrations of these principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and all of our affairs. While I was in my first and second year in recovery, I was really telling my ex-wife and my kids about it. And like, this is great. And actually it pushed them away. Hmm. They got very resentful at the program and at me and at this God thing. Cause now I'm talking about God. And I realized in that moment, I got to shut up. So I just lived it. So for the last four years, I've lived it. About six months ago, my two youngest daughters came to me and said, Dad, we want to work the program. My ex-wife came to me and said, Bill, I want to work the program. My ex-wife's not an alcoholic and addict. My two daughters are not alcoholics and addicts. One of them has major tendencies, and she may be, but the other one is quite a ways from crossing the line. But the power of attraction and the character and how I've changed has attracted many people that are non-alcoholic to what have you done? Cause I've had yeah. a full, full psychic change, dude. What do you recommend to them? Al-Anon or Coda? Nope. I recommend the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I recommend somebody who understands the design for a living aspect of this program. So I, I sourced out, uh, I asked my two daughters who they thought they would want. And I would suggest because I, I actually sponsor on, I don't even sponsor on the substance. I'm full design for living guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm able to spot those people that maybe might be good candidates for that type of sponsorship too. Most alcoholics addicts will not work with a non-alcoholic addict. Yeah. But there is the odd one that I have found that will. So my ex-wife right now is going through a full psych change and my one daughter just finished her 12 step yesterday and my other daughter's on step eight. So, wow, man, that's incredible. That's actually amazing. Like, to be honest, I mean, as insane as your story is, that aspect of it shocks me more. Like the, the part of it where your ex-wife and your daughters who don't even identify with substance abuse or a specific addiction have taken that step and actually gone out and, and worked a program with someone that is amazing. Like good for you and good for them. And honestly, that's, that's recovery right there. in the biggest, biggest sense of the word, because it's not just you recovering, right? It's your connection with everyone. It's your entire network. It's, it's the effect that you have in the lives of the people around you. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And Adrian, 
I'm a big book thumper. I, I'm all about the book. I know the book. I can quote the book. I understand de- layers and layers of the book. And actually, the book is suggested for the medical fraternity, was suggested for the family, for the employer, for the wives. But it's not really a suggestion for the real deal alcoholic. When you look at the original manuscript that Bill W. wrote by himself for the real deal alcoholic, not for the heavy drinker, but the real deal hopeless alcoholic like me. When given sufficient enough reason, the heavy janker can stop or moderate, but not me. I had sufficient enough reason. I couldn't stop or moderate no matter what I was losing, no matter what was happening. I burnt it to the ground. So in the original manuscript, it talks about directions, directions, directions over and over, not suggestions. But the book is actually designed, and the book also says we are sure our program has its benefits for all. So there's little aspects all throughout the literature that it talks about. This is for the family and any, anybody who wants it. And in the original manuscript for step 12, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of this course of action, we tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. And the real, the real diamond in the rough to this is attracting people to the way of life that aren't addicts or alcoholics. To me, that's a testament of what this big book can do. And you and I both know if all of society had the directions that we've been given and they would live by these principles and these directions, our whole of society would just be an amazing, exactly. amazing place. Exactly. Right? And it, oh man, I'm going to go off on a, on a big tangent on this because you have me excited because this is the whole reason I have the podcast. I think that the 12 steps, they only mention alcohol in step one, powerless over alcohol. My life is unmanageable. If you take that out, if you just say we admitted we are powerless and our lives are unmanageable, and then the rest of the steps stay the exact same right there, you have a guide for living that I have never come across in any other type of religion or self-help book or anything. It is the most powerful 80 page description of how to live your life. And I, and I want to spread that. I want to help other people come across that who might not even have an addiction, who might just be trying to better themselves. And and that's what I love about you, man, your YouTube, everything that you're doing, the step study that you put out as well. Like you're really showing people what this can do and, and showing people what it takes to achieve the type of happiness and peace that everyone really wants in their life. Yeah, dude. You know, I appreciate that we're we're like-minded like that. And and I do want to carry the message. And the book says when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Our society has a main focus on mental health. The the real issue here is the spiritual health and the spiritual malady, as described by our book. And as we look at the flaws in our makeup that cause our failure self, our foundation of society's is built on a foundation of self. And in our literature, I'm going to quote something here. Character defects representing instincts gone astray has been the primary cause of our destructive drinking and failure at life. Unless he is now willing to work hard at the elimination of the worst of these defects, both sobriety and peace of mind will still elude him. That all the faulty foundation is life will have to be torn out and built upon a new bedrock. The faulty foundation of my life is based in selfish self-centeredness and my character defects 
that are actually representations of my instincts gone astray. And unless I work hard at the elimination of the worst of these defects, tear down that faulty foundation and built upon a new bedrock. The bedrock is the cornerstone in the We Agnostics chapter. Upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. So I build on this new foundation of my creator, of God. In the book, it describes God. The fundamental idea of God is within every man, woman, and child. It's within everyone. What is it? It's love. That's what this program teaches us to live in love, forgiveness, kindness, you know, not be doormats. Like there's a balance to all this, but the primary power of this is based in love. And I've learned, just like the book says, common sense thus becomes uncommon sense. I spent my whole life trying to live and pry and snare and grab and take out a life shit that I thought would make me happy. That's actually the opposite. Yeah. I give, I accept, I understand. And then I get all of those things back. Like whoever would have thought, right? That's the faulty foundation of life is based in that self. And no, man, we got to base it in selflessness and, and love. And yeah, dude. Well said, man. Well said. That That's really the fundamental character change, right? Going from that selfish mode, me, 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 to the selfless mode of giving and being of service. And what was that like for you going into that mode of being of service? How did you first make that shift, practically speaking? What did you do to sort of get out of yourself and, and move towards helping other people? In the book, it says, we work out our solution on the spiritual and altruistic plane. The altruistic word by definition means unselfishly devoting oneself to the welfare, happiness, and well-being of others. Also, humility is all tied to that, and that's the basis of our program. When I first started doing altruistic actions that weren't altruistic, I was doing I was doing service and sponsoring to stay alive. I didn't care to do it i didn't want to answer the phone i didn't want to really help you or anybody else but i knew that i had no other choice once i went through this literature and i saw what was here i knew i was pretty much fucked if i didn't do this so then i started sponsoring i started chairing some meetings out of pure selfishness though dude because i don't i don't want to die and i want and i yeah. want my kids to have a dad and so after I sponsored and did enough service down the road, I realized this shit makes me feel good. So the service work makes me feel good. So there's still such a selfish component to it. I'd feel like shit. I'd be like, okay, let's talk to a sponsee and feel good again. So I used it as a mechanism to feel good. Still selfish component to it though. But down the road, I started realizing I'm doing this stuff just because it's the right thing to do. And that's the real gifts of the program. And so it's, it, it's been six years of growth, but at about three years, it all changed. I started doing this stuff with, without reservation, without any expectation for reward or anything in return. And I actually quit my career as a construction professional. And I went down the path that you see today, YouTube, just helping people. And I've gotten what I need. The book tells me when we sincerely took this position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. Having this new employer, creator, God, whatever, he will necessarily provide me with what I need if I stay close to him and perform his work well. 
dude, that's my exact experience. When I stay close to my creator, God, I perform his work well, I get what I need. And the thing is, is that it doesn't matter how much material things or whatever it is that I don't have. I'm okay inside. And when yeah. I get okay on the inside, everything's okay on the outside. That's a powerful, that's a powerful experience to have, right? To have a deeper, a deeper type of fulfillment, a deeper type of happiness and peace that isn't connected to the externals. It isn't connected to an image that you're putting out or to an identity that you're trying to put on for everybody else. I think that is is really out of all the promises, out of all the things that one can receive out of recovery, I think that is definitely the 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 prize, the top jewel. It's just that experience of being okay with being yourself, being okay, just being alone, having that contentment, having that fulfillment. It's um it's a powerful experience and I, I really I wish you the best in that journey of just continuing to reach out to other people, continuing to build that YouTube channel. I'm really honored you came on this podcast and shared your story, man. It's really awesome for me just to to hear your testimony, to hear your life story, and to hear all the good things that are happening around you with your family, with this new career path that you're going down, and this path of healing for others. Before we wrap it up, what's one thing that you would want to leave listeners with who might not have even read the big book yet, who might just be coming along, this, entering this recovery journey, and trying to decide what will work for them? What would you want to leave them with? What I would like to leave them with, and a lot of people are going to just think this is my opinion. So I've worked with over 300 alcoholics one-on-one. I've seen a lot. My best friend also has worked with over 300 alcoholics addicts one-on-one. So we've combined our data and we see what we see. There's no better way in the world to get sober and stay sober than the directions that are contained in that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you think that that book is a theory or some guy's opinion, good fucking luck. I feel sorry for you. Once you take that literature and you actually believe that that's the way to live, your life will get exponentially better. And I can't even tell the logical mind, the other person who's listening, you cannot understand to the depth of, what I'm talking about. As you live this way of life, creator or God is an experience and the experience that you get by following this way of life. And it's, it's inexplicable and it's unexplainable. And the only way you can try that, you can, you can listen to me, but you may not believe me. The only way to do this is to jump off that cliff of faith and try it. And then, then see that's it. It's experiential, man. It's not rational. It's not logical. That's, right. That's the thing. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Bill. This has been awesome. You're uh, you're uh, doing Bill W. a great uh, a great service with everything you do. Um, and yeah, I'm just really grateful to have met you, to have heard your story, and I look forward to talking with you more. And Adrian, I thank you, and I appreciate everything you're doing and uh, packing into the stream of life in your own way, dude. I'm thank you for for asking me to be here and keep rocking at my brother. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of the addictive pod. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. If you got anything out of what Bill had to share, don't forget to check out his Instagram. It is at Bill Ward life. 
and his YouTube channel and a link to his Instagram is also going to be in the description below. That's all for me today. Until next Wednesday, remember, we recover together.